I saw you aiming at this. I don't know if I, did you get it in time? I didn't think so. All right. I saw her lift up her phone and hit the QR code right as the slide changed. I'm like, well, I, I can give that to her. So, all right. Um, there you go. That was just for uh, me and her, I guess. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there. If you need a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, and in fact, if you happens to be the same page numbers as my Bible, if you're a guest and you're looking for that, it's page 958 uh, for the rest of us. Pastor Maldi already said this, but uh, we do have a little note sheet in the, back of the, in the back of the chairs if you don't have something to take notes with. At Generations, we would highly encourage you, anytime we are doing anything, we're getting together about something, have a Bible, have a notebook, have something to write with. Um, our kids have a kid's handout. If they need that, we can get you those. They're out on the table right there. But we believe that taking notes helps us remember. Actually, not that. Let me say that. That sounds really dumb. Taking notes actually helps us remember. It's not like we think so. It's just true, right? And so we want to learn and grow. And so we really encourage you to take notes. At the end of the message, we're going to give you time to share a takeaway with a neighbor. That is what is something personal stood out to you in the message that you want to act on over the next week or two? And so that is what we'll do at the end of the message. Now, today, we're going to talk about adopting worldly values from pagan culture. Now, pagan means ungodly, but in this context, pagan culture is also the worship of false gods or other idols or deities, right? And so we're in the story in Corinth where Paul is having this back and forth with the church in Corinth, the church that he began. He was the original one to go in and share the gospel and see people come to faith in Jesus and, and, and to baptize them and even to hand off to some elders. And then the church since then has grown far beyond what it was when Paul left. And there's been a dialogue back and forth, some letters and some even some people from Corinth have come and visited Paul. And so what we have in the Bible that we call 1 Corinthians, is at least Paul's second letter. And 2 Corinthians is at least his fourth letter. It could be more. So we're in a dialogue where Paul is caring for the church. And Corinth was this hub of, of lots of forms of worship, lots of little worshiping idols and false gods. And so people that were coming to faith were coming to faith out of that culture and learning that Jesus is the one true God, right? That the God who created everything became flesh, became human for us. And so they're, they're seeing all these other man-made idols of people or of animals or of whatever. And they're learning that there's a God who created everything and that that is the only one true God. And that Jesus, God, became flesh to reconcile us to God is the gospel. And so they're learning that, but they're coming out of the world. Now, maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe you're brand new to church. Either way, we live in a world that is that the culture of the world around us saturates us, right? If you go to public schools, or if you even, even private schools or Christian schools, you can't help but be influenced by the world around us. You can't turn on a TV show without seeing an agenda. You can't, you can't miss it. Now, some of it's fine. A lot of it isn't. And so what do we do with that? And so this is speaking to the Corinthian Christians about how they've adopted worldly values from the culture. And today it's going to look at two things that are really common topics for us. So it reminds us, there's nothing really new in the world, right? 
And so gender and sexuality are what Paul is going to speak about today. More on the gender side, but that's what he's going to talk about. And these two things, gender and sexuality, are as old as humanity. That this has been a struggle for a long time. There's Old Testament passages early in Old Testament speak to this, and, and then we still see this being written to in the first century church. Obviously an issue for us today. So I'm going to put this note on the screen for you, equal but different. This is language we use all the time, that God created men and women with equal, equal dignity and value, but different in design and role. That's particularly true in the church and in the home, right? So men and women are equal but different. That's the language we use. We call that complementarianism. That doesn't mean compliment like I'm like, hey, Jacob, nice shirt, right? Compliment like complementary, like that we complement one another, we offset, or we're the opposite but counterpart to. And so complementarianism, the, the key words are equal but different. We're created by God, equal in the image of God and dignity and value, but we are different in our roles, right? And so that's what Paul is going to speak to today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul is using his apostolic authority. Paul is speaking to them as one sent by Jesus with Jesus' authority to speak to them on these issues. So he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now we should all be able to say that. In fact, if you have done discipleship with someone in the church, you've heard this verse before. And the question is, can you imagine yourself, and it's early on in the discipleship process, where you say, okay, can you imagine yourself saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? And, and really, we circle back to that later in discipleship, and we feel maybe pretty uncomfortable in the beginning, but later on, we understand what that looks like. I should be able to say with confidence, imitate how I live, because I'm imitating Jesus, right? And, then, and that should come with kind of a, a caution, hey, that, that means I'm not perfect, and I don't even pretend to be, but I am following Jesus. So even when I make mistakes or even when I do wrong, I'll, I'll at least show you how to repent, right? I'll, I'll at least show you how to turn from sin because I am following Jesus. You should be able to say that. Parents, it's imperative that you can say that to your children, that they can follow you as you follow Jesus. So our model to others should replicate this. No, we don't have that same apostolic authority of writing what becomes canonized scripture as Paul does, but we should be following Jesus enough to where others could follow us to him. Verse 2, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, I, I don't typically do this, but I want to give you some Greek terms that are in here um, because they, they, they have a, a unique meaning for today. And so traditions are doctrinal teachings. When we hear traditions, we hear kind of the things that men create. And if you look back in the Gospels, Jesus speaks that way when he, he talks to the Pharisees, but he calls them the traditions of men. He clarifies, these are the traditions of men. And you're ignoring God to follow the traditions of men. When Paul uses those, this term, he's talking about doctrine from God. When he says the traditions that were delivered to you, he's using the same word. So there's paradosis and there's paradoka, right? The one is the noun, the thing, and the other is the verb, the way you got the thing. So I want you to hear this, so that, that you were traditioned the traditions of God, right? There is a way that Paul is speaking to 
that these things were not just delivered. See, we use tradition and delivered. They have nothing in common in their root words or in their spelling. Nothing looks the same. But here they are, that you were traditioned in the way of Christ. The doctrines are traditions of God. One more. I want to read it again from verse 2. It says, now, you maintain the traditions even as I deliver them. So you maintain the traditions even as I traditioned them to you. That word maintain is kateko, which comes from the same word, katakeo, where we get our word catechism, right? So the thing we're doing each week, in fact, can I put up this week's, Marcia? So this, this is a catechism. A catechism or catechesis is a way of learning by memorizing a question and an answer. My best example that I can come up with, because I haven't got any smarter ones, how I remember my multiplication table since I'm a little kid, right? What two times two is four, two times three is six, two times four, right? I, if I keep going, I'll probably mess it up. So I'm just going to quit there, all right? So you memorize truth so that when you need it, you have it. Catechism. So what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. So we memorize that, and there's verse references, and if that was, that was this is just a slide, but if that was the app, that little lower left-hand side is a Bible verse that fits that passage. That little quote, some commentary on it, and that little quote to folded hands is a prayer you can pray. And that is built so that you can do this with your kids. So it's built for us and for teaching our kids. And so that's the New City Catechism. We're working through that this year. Catechesis is that process, that learning by memorizing a question and answer. So learning truth, like what our multiplication tables are, so that when we're doing math, we know some easy things and don't always need a calculator, right? Catecheo. Verse 3, so I want you to, so before I go on, Paul is telling the church, you learned doctrine from me, and I traditioned it into you. I trained you in a particular way. In fact, I, I delivered it or traditioned it to you, and you maintain, you catechesis it. And I want you to hear that, that it takes work to remain in the doctrine or in the truth of God. And so if you just show up on Sundays, there's a lot more to this, right? It's kind of like if you play in a sport, you don't just show up to the game, right? You have physical training that you do. You have team training, maybe individual training. If you take your sport seriously, you're probably serious about your health and your diet and other things. And our faith should be above that, right? Our faith should be the, the greatest thing we're training for. And so we give it to you this way. If Jesus is truly what you wake up every day, not what, but who you wake up every day to follow, that'll look different in your life. You will train towards that end. You will catechize, you will tradition, you will maintain because truth matters, right? Verse 3. But I want you to understand, and we're going to read this verse a few times, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is the best place, I think, in all of Scripture to have that conversation around complementarianism, that men and women are created equal but different, meant to complement one another. So they're equal in dignity and value, equally created in the image of God, but serve in different roles or functions, right? That we are equal but different. The world around us today, the opposite term is egalitarian, that men and women are equal and no different. That's the world we live in. 
take that one step further. Like, what's a woman? What's a man? I mean, it's just, you know, it's fluid. It's, you can choose, right? Now, most of us look at that and say, that's a little crazy, right? Like that, okay, that, you can't just, like, choose, right? You can't self-select that. more. You can self-select something else, right? And so we look at that, and we know there's problems there, but the world we live in is pushing on that, and it began decades ago with the idea of egalitarianism that men and women are equal and no different. Well, that's not how God created us. And so now what you hear, if you say we're equal but different, if you hear that today, you hear things like misogyny and patriarchy. You hear these, these different things and toxic masculinity and feminism and all these things. And, and, and there's reasons for some of that. The, the pendulum for sure has swung too far in different directions, right? Where men have abused their roles and, and women have abused their roles. Like there's, there's problems in it. But we don't want to look at the stereotype or the straw man argument. We want to look at, okay, what did God create? So here's how Paul goes about that conversation. He says that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, but the head of Christ is God. Now, head is a metaphor for authority. Like our head leads the rest of us for the most part, right? And so the idea here is to understand ourselves, male and female, as we learn about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So is Jesus any less than God the Father? All right, no. Does Jesus submit willingly to God the Father? Joyfully, okay. So you can be equal but different. You can be equal but submitted, right? You can say, okay, we're equal but you lead, right? But you're, you're in this. And so are they equal? Yes. Are they different? Yes. And so I'm going to put this up for you, the doctrine of deference. Jesus, although equal to God the Father, willingly submits to him out of deference, deferring authority from one equal to another by design. The argument of deference requires that you must be equal but defer leadership, right? That's true at work. That's true on a church staff. That's true in a school, right? That you have a, a group of equals, but somebody's at the top of the org chart, right? And so however they arrive there, we defer leadership to that person, right? Can't everybody run the organization, right? And so we have an org chart. But it doesn't mean that people are unequal. It does mean they're different, but they're equal. But they, they serve in different roles. And, and Jesus models us for that. So John 6 says this, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says, I didn't come down to do my own will. I came down to do God the Father's will, right? There's just a, a bunch of places where Jesus says, I do nothing unless the Father who sent me tells me, right? He just teaches us that though he is an equal, equal in divinity, equal in dignity, equal in, in, in every way, but different, and chooses, willingly, joyfully submits to God the Father. So let's read this again, verse 3. But I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You can take that first part, every man. You could even use all humanity, but it's every man. Just that man is submitted, is called to be created to be submitted to Jesus. So let's do that part first. So humanity is created to submit to God, 
right? That we're designed to be, we, we, at generations, we use that term worshipers. We are designed that our whole lives would bring worship and glory, point to the beauty and the value and, and the glory of God, right? But sin entered into human history and destroyed creation. You have the world that God created, which was perfect and flawless, and, and humanity brought him glory, but then sin ruins that, and it severs the relationship between humanity and God. And so sin is the broken world that we live in now, and sin affects or infects every area of our lives. It is so completely corrupt that they, it has made us into human beings that there's nothing we can do to fix the relationship, to, to reconnect with God. Because a holy God cannot partner with sinful humanity. And so Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, the word of God in creation becomes flesh, becomes fully human while remaining fully divine. Remember the catechism question, one who is truly God and truly human, right? Has to remain fully God because he's God, but has to become fully human. 100%, 100%, not good math, true theologically. And must become that to be the bridge for us, right? So Jesus enters into human flesh, call that the incarnation, Jesus lives a sinless life, that he is victorious over this world at Satan's sin and temptation, that he goes on and he pays a substitutionary price for us. He goes to the cross in our place, saving us from the wrath of God and the penalty of sin. He's laid in the grave for our forgiveness. He's resurrected from the grave to give us new life. That we're not just forgiven, but we're new, right? We're given a new life. We get to live differently ascends back to heaven to reign as Lord. We say Jesus is our Lord and Savior, saves us, but also leads us, guides us. As he is Lord in heaven, he gives us his spirit. The very promise of baptism is that his spirit lives within us, leading us, guiding us, transforming us. And then we have the final hope of his return. That when Jesus returns, whenever that day may be, that he fixes this broken world. So we live in a world broken while being transformed, while being led and lorded over and empowered by Jesus, awaiting his return where everything is restored. There's a couple verses to share with you. 2 Corinthians says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're in Jesus, if you're in Christ, <clears throat> if you've been regenerated and, 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 and baptized and you've received the Spirit within you, then you're new, right? You've been made new and then indwelled by God's presence to live in new ways. And that's going to particularly matter as we look at marriage roles and we look at roles in the church, that we're made to live as God created, We'll talk about that in a second. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world or the values of this world or the morals of this world or the way this world functions, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Learn what God made. Learn what God calls us to live to that end, right? Be renewed. That word mind, we were just talking about this last week in discipleship with some guys. That word mind isn't just brain. It's like it would be better translated like as a lens, right? If you wear glasses, there's a lens between you and the world clarifying things. 
That's what the gospel should do for us, is become a lens by which we see life in a new and different and clear way, right? By the renewal of the lens by which you see life through. One more time, but at verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. <clears throat> in the gospel, that becomes true. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. We see equal but different lived out in the sinless, flawless, perfect God. We see the Trinity see this mutual submission and the submission of Jesus the Son to God the Father. And so the deference is that wives are called to submit to husbands, and husbands are called to lead their families. Okay, so here's where we get the pushback. Culture says, no, they're, they're equal, they're no different. There is no one over the other. That's patriarchy, that's misogyny, that's this, that's that. The reaction to that becomes feminism, right? I don't need a man, blah, blah, blah. Like, you, you get these two sides. And I want you to set down today the things we hear in culture, and I want you to look at how God created. Because here's what matters. Before sin came in and ruined everything, God created a world where there was still an equal but different, right? And that, that we, are, we are born into that, and then we're born into a sinful, broken world with all the abuses of those things, the, the abuses on this side and the abuses on that side, right? And so we live in this, and that's true, but our reaction isn't to ignore what God created, but rather embrace what God created, to understand the design of man and woman and parents and marriage and children and all of the design of God. And so just as Jesus submits to the Father, wives can submit to husbands without losing their equality or dignity. In fact, they're living within the design of God. As God the Father is to Jesus, so husbands should be to their wives. That should be that loving, leadership, caring relationship. And the reverse is to as Jesus is to the Father, so too wives should be to their husbands. I've been saying this all year. It may have started last year, but I feel like in, at generations here, and, and, and we're not alone for sure, but we're fighting a, a war on two fronts, right? We're fighting against the culture that we live in, and let's just be really clear, we're in a suburb of Long Beach, right? Which means you have one of the great largest LGBTQ community parades, one of the largest parades, pride parades happens here. This is a, a liberal city, a liberal, an, an ideologically liberal city, right? And so we're, on, we're, we're encompassed in that. And so saying something like this is just rejected by the, the community that we live in. It may be different if you live in Boise or in Iowa or something. That might be a little different, but it's still live in the same world, right? We still live in the same U.S. where we're dealing with nationally all the same things. And so we're going to get different levels of it, or, or we're going to see different layers of it, or dealing with transgenderism or things like that, like everybody else talks about it in theory, and I just call it a Tuesday, because we're constantly dealing with it, right? We are having those conversations weekly with people that are struggling in those areas. And so it's, this is daily here, where it may not be in all places. But we're fighting a war there, we're also fighting a war against church culture, American church culture. So let me just kind of divvy that up for a minute. Cultural problems today. Culturally, we are taught that men and women are not different at all. We're taught that there are more than two genders. Gender is fluid. That gender is a choice, 
right? You can choose what you are, which we know is not true. We're told that gender roles are outdated. We're told that masculinity is bad and toxic. We are taught that femininity is bad and repressive. And then, and that's in culture. And then in the church, we have a generation of men who have abdicated their roles as leader, right? We're just phoning in and not leading. And so in response to that, we have a generation of women who have taken those roles instead of the men, right? We see that in churches that are primarily led by women, women elders, women pastors, women preachers, things like that. Most of the time, that's because men have just quit leading. Men have abdicated their role and just taken a back seat. They do the same thing in their homes. When the strongest one in faith in the home is the wife, things are going to be upside down, right? Because men are called to be that. We have men who don't lead spiritually because they're too lazy often to lead. We have women who won't follow their husbands because they don't trust them. And we see churches, again, like I said, add women as elders, pastors, and preachers, and they're considered to be modern and affirming. And I would say unbiblical, yeah. And so what we do is we're fighting, a, we're fighting, as always, culture. But now, today, we're also fighting church culture, right? Because both sides are saying that what God's word says is either unclear, outdated, misunderstood, or just outright wrong. Let that never be us. So last time, but I want you to understand, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. He goes on, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. This is not always true, but today, historical and cultural context is, is a must to understand the text. So the Corinthian culture had come out of false forms of worship. And in the idol temples that existed in Corinth, men of high status, of high cultural position, would be the leaders. And so the priests, when they would, or the others, would, when they would get up and they would pray or do something, they would take their togas and the, and the covers and they would, they would cover their head as a symbol of their high status. So that would happen outside the church in these idolatry temples, right? And so they would exclude people of low status, maybe lower income or kind of a, a lower citizenship because Rome had layers to it. They would exclude them from those roles of leadership. And so by putting this thing over the head, they were kind of boasting in who they were. That's antithetical to being a Christian, right? Where we boast in who Christ is, and if anything, we lower ourselves because the offense of the gospel is that I'm sinful and, and in need of a Savior, there's nothing I can do to, to fix that. That it must be Jesus, right? So if we elevate ourselves, if I were to elevate myself in that way, that would be against Jesus and against the church. So that's what he's saying. And then there's going to be head coverings for women. Now, this is in a culture where women wore a, uh, not a veil like face, but like a light veil or head covering when they were married. When they got married, they would wear that. So that it was kind of like if you're still in a Polynesian culture, you have a flower, right? Or there's, there's other cultures that have different symbols of that. Today, mostly here, it's a wedding ring or last name change right? We have those two things that are symbols of marriage. And so we're going to have to translate and apply that today. See, in this culture, men were allowed to be promiscuous and sleep around and do that, but women were not allowed to. And so they rebel in this culture, and instead of going around with their veil on showing that they're married, they'd take it off and go around and also be promiscuous. Okay, so I'm not condoning the way men are living, 
but we're speaking to that issue in women and the other issue in men. Does that make sense? Paul would agree neither one should be out being promiscuous, right? But culture is what he's speaking to. He's speaking about gender. And the bigger issue about men here is that they're lording it over other men in the church, and they're, they're kind of in that way disrespecting Jesus and the church, and women are disrespecting Jesus, the church, their families. It's kind of working like that. Two different meanings for head coverings. You with me? All right. Every man who prays or prophesies with a head covered dishonors his head. Now, pray or prophesy, prophesy isn't future telling. I say this a lot, but it doesn't, doesn't seem to stick always, right? Prophesying is just speaking a message from God. It could be preaching, it, it could be something else, it could be an encouragement to another person. In this place, it's not speaking about anything formal done on a stage, but it's talking about praying or speaking a message on behalf of God in some way, like an encouragement to someone, right? And so it's going to apply this both to men and women. So anyone who does this, he's talking now to men who does this with their head covered, now you're trying to lord it over the other person. You're elevating your status, right? Modern day equivalent. We don't have a lot of this, but in the prosperity doctrine churches that we've talked about, a lot of times what you see is a lot of high and very expensive suits, right? Because the doctrine is, if you give more money to the church and repent of your sin, God wants to make you rich. So then the leaders put on very expensive clothing, right? elevating their status, right? Now, we don't see that here in this church particularly, but we do see it in church culture. So that's a, a modern-day equivalent. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. There's a bit of a play on words. With her head uncovered, is talking about her physical head, dishonors her head, meaning her husband, right? Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Another cultural piece here is when women were caught in adultery, and again, this is not equal, this is not fair. Men were not treated the same way. We're not condoning that. Just teaching you the culture. If women were caught in adultery, the government would shave their head. Dishonoring, so you would know, the ball girl, we know why. You with me? So here's what he's saying. And, and Paul, as you know, uses his spiritual gift, much like I do, of sarcasm, right? And so he says, now every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So he's making that parallel to women who have been caught in adultery because typically they would go around with their head uncovered for that purpose. So he's equating it, right? The modern-day equivalent are wives who do not, and this is, again, I would say the same thing to men, who do not wear a wedding ring or wives who do not take a man's last name in order to show their independence from their husband rather than submission to him. I don't know why, but about 20 years ago in the church that I was in, my wife and I just noticed there was just a, a lot of men and women who didn't wear rings it was for, that were married. That was foreign to us, right? That why would we want, not want that symbol of marriage? Why would we not be proud to be married? Now, I don't know what their answer was. We were young in our faith. It was something we noticed, moved on, haven't seen as much of that since then. But rings and last names are still a thing, right? And... and a lot of it is around independence, right? Independence of and from the husband. And, and you have to ask yourself today, why would that be? Like, why would we not see what God has created and designed, and why would we not celebrate that? Why would we not champion marriage? 
Today in culture, you'll hear marriage is repressed, it's an institution, it's man-made, it's this, it's that. We would say that's not true. It's how God created us, right? And then if God designed it, we should be willing to champion it, right? Verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since, again, he's being sarcastic, just want you to hear that. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head, right? So he's, he's saying, well, listen, to do this is equal to that, so just do that. No, don't, right? Like, you're going to take me seriously, better not do Okay, so, and then he clarifies his, a bit of sarcasm, right? So Paul is comparing wives with unco- uncovered heads to being as disgraceful as the punishment for infidelity. Verse 7, for a man ought not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So the next few verses are going to look at the distinctions, the differences between men and women created differences. Paul is not lowering women, he's elevating them, right? That he's saying, I'll say it this way, let's face it, women, you are the better of the two of us, right? You look better, you tend to smell better, right? Let's just stay there, right? You're the glory of man. I mean, let's just, let's just go with it, right? I'm a big fan, you're the glory of man, all right? Dudes, you got work to do. I mean, I'm saying, right? When he says you're the glory of man, he's not subjecting or lowering women, he's actually elevating them. And then he says husbands should represent God, right? That we should give godly authority and leadership to our homes and churches rather than the junk we've been putting in for decades. So wives should represent their families, men should represent God to their families and to the community and the church, right? And that wives should bring glory to the fact of the family, right? That the the family is actually a good and biblical thing. Gender should actually be championed. Marriage should be championed. The roles in marriage, equal but different, should be championed instead of kind of repressed or hidden from. There's two verses that stuck out to me. Proverbs 12. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. 1 Corinthians 16. This is our, our verse for the men's retreat last year. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Listen, let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, protecting, right? Stand firm in your faith. You should be convicted of your faith. You should be the one leading in your home, right? Act like men, be strong, but be loving. Let all that you do be done in love. That's against that kind of macho kind of, it's against that. It's also against the modern-day man who is functionally neutered, right? I mean, like, it's against that, and it's against that. And it's not halfway between the two. It's what God created. That's different. And women are not being repressed and treated as second-class citizens, and they're not being elevated as feminists over everything. They're being treated as women and wives in the gospel who have a role and a function that men can't do. And that the beauty of that is that we reveal God to the world we live in when we live this way. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. The created order giving a role where God delegates authority. Could have picked either one. God made the decision. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Remember the creation story. Adam is created, the world's perfect, it's sinless. All the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars, it's beautiful, it's perfect, it's unruined. 
And God's word is that man ought not be alone. It's not good, right? There's all these things that are good. God makes the stars, it's good. Sun and the moon, it's good. Animals, good. Meat, good, right? Bacon, okay. Then he says it's first not good. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. Helper is the same term that is used for God in the Old Testament, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It means like front side or counterpart, one that complements us, you might say. It's not good that he's alone. We need a teammate. We need a family. In order to do it right, we need both. So the creation order is what he's speaking about. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought not have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, this verse is a bit of a mystery. If anybody gives you a solid answer on this, run. Uh, I read the best one recently. The word angelos in Greek means messenger. Sometimes it means divine messenger like an angel, right? But that's where we get our word angel, right? That's where we get the word from. So when we see angel, we always think that. But if the Greek word angelos actually means messenger. One theory, no, I'm just going to be honest, I'll tell you again, nobody actually knows what this little bit, this little phrase actually means because of the angels. Like, we're not sure. The best answer I heard is that either, whether it be divine like angels, or it be messengers, people that arrive in the church, it's so that others would see God's design within us. That was the best answer I heard. I don't know that that's true. I've heard lots of wacky answers, and I'll just tell you that that part has been a little bit lost to history, and I'd rather be honest with you and say, really don't know. You can choose. Here's a good answer. I just don't know if it's true, right? But it beats giving you an answer that isn't true and not telling you. Verse 11, nevertheless on the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. So we've moved from what's different to what's the same now. Equal but different, right? So now we're moving over to the what's the same part. For as women was, woman was made from man, so man is now born of the woman. All things are from God, right? So here's the equal side. We are interdependent. Takes two to make any more. And you can't do it with two men or two women. I get it, science still started with a man and a woman, right? Understand that this is necessary. Part of that science is good. It helps people who struggle to have children. Part of it's not so good, right? Because we've destroyed the nuclear family. We've destroyed God's design for families. That's the problem, right? And so there, there's this interdependence. And anything from God, this interdependence, should be championed, not hidden in the back. Right? We should not shy away from the fact that we believe that God has called men to lead in our homes. Shouldn't shy away from that. We should teach it as beautiful. We should teach women as beautiful. We should hold both equally high. Because God made both. We should champion marriage. Right? Marriage is not a band-aid to put on your sin. Marriage is something that God calls us to when we live in for the sake of a family, for the sake of one another, for a lifetime. It's not a convenience. It's not something you quit on when it's hard, because it'll be hard, right? I noticed none of you answered. Smart husbands. All right, good. All right. Verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? I want to ask this question differently. And I want it to apply to all of us. Is it proper for you to be so okay with yourself while you're engaged in sin that you're comfortable praying? 
That's kind of what he's saying. Now, he's targeting it at one side of the issue, right? Because he's already hammered the other side of the issue, right? Men elevating themselves over others is just flat out wrong and antithetical to the gospel and looks nothing like Jesus. Jesus, who was God when he became flesh, humbled himself to become flesh, lived in a, in a, in a low-status family, never elevated himself, though he is God who created us all. He's the model, right? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears his hair long, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Love this verse, just for the record. Uh, it normally makes for fun jokes with people in the church. But uh, when, a, when someone dresses up as a woman who's not, one of the immediate and constant things they do is put on a long-haired wig, Right? Whether it's for Halloween or if it's for a profession or to read books to kids in libraries, I don't know. But they're, they're, like you go with a long wig, right? Like there's an immediate kind of natural tendency. And those who want to look more masculine, natural tendency is shorter hair. Now, it's not a rule, right? And uh, you, you can have, I mean, the 60s, the 80s, we've kind of broken that mold. Long hair exists on guys. Okay. Short hair exists on women. What is it you're saying with it is what he's asking. He said, isn't nature itself? And so both from our design and from our natural tendencies inside of culture, right? our tendencies are this looks more feminine, this looks more masculine. Those are our natural answers. There's also some biological truth, the difference between testosterone and estrogen, right? Why do guys lose their hair more commonly than women? Testosterone will do that for you. Estrogen will actually grow your hair, right? Like there are some natural things that fit this story that coincide with God's design. Now, when we lose ourselves in what culture thinks or we lose ourselves in science, we miss the point of what God has created. They can all be true, but what God created is what matters, right? How God designed men and women to be is this. And the summary of this, take hair out of it for a minute, Women should look feminine, men should look masculine, they shouldn't try and blur that, right? That's been true since Deuteronomy on forward, just for the record. And that this is just true. Now what that means culturally varies. I'll read you a quote from Tom Schreiner, who wrote our, the commentary we used throughout the book of Revelation. He says, how men and women wear their hair is, is a significant indication of whether they are abiding by created order. Of course, what is appropriately masculine or feminine may vary widely from culture to culture. What looks feminine here might not on the other side of the planet. That's okay. What does your culture say about masculine and femininity? And are you aiming at what you are? And are you doing so to glorify God and, and to be what God has made and created? Again, the length of your hair here is irrelevant. You with me? Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. This is Paul stamping this entire gender and relationship conversation with a, this isn't just cultural, this is forever. So it's a universal teaching about men and women and marriage. It is God's design which transcends culture, right? Culture will change, culture come and goes. God's truth transcends it all. Right, So marriage, men, women, transcends it all. There will be errors on both sides. 
right? There will be errors over here. There will be errors over here. God's truth transcends that. We stay with the truth and the teaching of God. I'll give you three major areas to think through today. Be culturally appropriate, male or female. Whatever that looks like, be culturally appropriate. Second one is be champions of God's design for gender, showing its beauty. What a godly man should look like is actually beautiful. What a godly woman looks like is beautiful. And they're beautiful in different ways, for sure. And they have different designs. They're equal in created dignity and value. They are different in role. Right? And we know we have differences. Celebrate that. That's created. That's designed. Right? Last one is teach biblical headship in our homes and in our churches. We unapologetically call men to lead in their homes. Right there, we, we seek to elevate men to the role of like pastor shepherd in their own house, to lovingly lead their wives and kids towards Jesus. There's always exceptions of single parent families, things like that, that we, that we as a church try and wrap around and walk with. But in the family where there's a mom and a dad and their children, that we, we try and elevate men to leading their homes, right? And then we try and remind women that your value and your, and your homeward kind of orientation is beautiful, right? And the things that you do and the, the things that are different about you are actually celebrated. We do the same thing in the church. We reserve just the role of elder or pastor. Elder's the office, right? We reserve that just for men. It'd be hard to have women spiritual leaders in the church trying to have, make men spiritual leaders in the home, right? And that's why God has created it. That one role, we have female deacons, we have female staff, we have all kinds of things. Female worship leaders, male elders, right? Then we might elevate men to the role of leadership, not bullies, not jerks, but Christ-like leaders who love their families, love their church, and lead from that place. So takeaways, what, what application will you make for yourself today? Consider some of the following categories. For myself, I personally love God's design here, so I should highlight the beauty of women and the calling of men more. Right? That's my takeaway, that I actually love this. I should be a stronger champion of this than I am currently. That we should talk about, especially because we have men preaching and doing things, we should elevate women to the roles that are beautiful that are designed for. Right? We should call men to leadership, call women to the beautiful position that they're called to, for mature believers, if you've been walking with Jesus for some time now and your, your faith has matured, you've likely felt the pushback in culture to blur these lines, but you have the unique opportunity to correct false assumptions and teach the truth. Oh, that's repressive. Oh, masculinity is toxic. Not just get into a political dialogue because we're never going to win, right? That's never going to solve anything. But to teach what God created, what men should look like in Christ, what women should look like in Christ, what children should look like, who should be discipling them in the families. If you're new to the faith, you'll likely need to hear what a correct view of manhood and womanhood are, not the stereotypes that we are lived out in today. That may mean some repentance in an area. If you are not willing to follow your husband, or, or if you're a husband and you're not willing or not leading your family, it might require some repentance. Right? That might require some discipleship, some training, some teaching of what it looks like for you to be a godly husband or wife. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I want you to hear that God created a world without these problems. 
that God created a world where this was not broken. Sin is what broke us in both sexuality, gender, all of it. And then what God restores us to is a world where he is restoring and repairing and redeeming those things. That we actually truly have all hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter where we begin, no matter how we identify or feel like inside or what are we attracted to, that the gospel is the answer to that. If you're a uh, parent with kids here, do you teach your kids God's design for their lives? And as they get older, teach them what to look for in a godly partner for their lives. Do you raise daughters to be godly moms and wives? Do you raise sons to be godly men and husbands with that value? Do you teach them to look for what they're looking for in the opposite? As they date, are you teaching them godly values for their future? Do we champion gender in marriage in our families? Take some time. You've got a couple minutes. What is your takeaway? What is something you heard today that you want to work on in the next week or two? We've got three minutes. If you guys would just circle up, let's do that.